In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. What a beautiful mystery, God's providence. Because on this day we celebrate St. Anthony the Great. As you know, it's not every year that St. Anthony falls on a Sunday. And he is a great saint for us in these times of peril. He was one who with his own hands wrestled the devil and the demons. He is known as the father of, saint, of monastics because he was in the desert very early on in the birth of monasticism in the, the late third century. And he lived in the desert and he found a fortress. He sold, first of all, he sold everything and he left everything that he had and went into the wilderness, found an abandoned fortress and there for many years wrestled in prayer, wrestled against the devil. And at times, the devil would use these different uh, visions of things, of wild beasts coming or of snakes. And he stood firm despite these great temptations, these fearful things coming at him. It reminds me of St. Yaakovos of Evia, a recent saint, who one time when he was praying in the cave of St. David, it became filled with scorpions. That was a pretty uh, startling image for me. I lived in Las Vegas. We had scorpions. And so we see in the life of St. Anthony, of St. Yaakovos, of Evia as well, we see this direct assault against the devil because the devil is having a direct assault against the person. And yet that saint is unwavering in their faith and their fidelity to God. You see, we too are wrestling against the devil, the avolos, the divider as his name is. We wrestle against him as well. Last week I said one of the most fundamental tasks of Christians is to recognize the work of the devil. Unlike St. Anthony, we're not wrestling alone in abandoned fortresses. Instead, we're wrestling here in church. We're wrestling against the demons of judgment, of fear, of doubt, of pride, and of a whole host of enemies. Sadly, we're often wrestling against our own brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because we've lost focus. As St. Anthony said, always have God before your eyes wherever you go. Instead of God, we have our neighbors before our eyes, judging their facial coverings, making assumptions about their political or philosophical viewpoints, seeing whether they adhere to parish guidelines, in this way, we make our neighbor into our enemies instead of the one true enemy, the divider himself. Instead of wrestling against our own judgment, our fear, and our self-righteous pride. My brothers and sisters, you are in the house. This is the dwelling place of God. In the times of old before Christ's coming in the flesh, there was one place that was the dwelling place of God the temple. And that one dwelling place of God was greatly sanctified by the presence of God. He said that his heart and mouth would always be there. And then Christ came. And through Christ, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and through the coming of the Holy Spirit, we now have dwelling places all over the world of God. These dwelling places are these sanctified temples 
And it is a mystery of the Holy Spirit that all of these are the dwelling place of God. All of the churches around the world. In the Psalms, St. David, the, the prophet and king, says this, How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of, of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. This is the temple of the living God, the dwelling place of the creator of the universe. But furthermore, this isn't just the house of God. You are in the midst of the divine liturgy. When we said just a few moments, blessed is the kingdom of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we were entering into the mystical banquet at the end of time. It doesn't feel like that. We're here in a quiet room hearing the hum of the fans. But we have entered into the eternal kingdom. We have joined with the saints and the angels in the unending worship of God. That's where we are right now. The icons that are around us, they're not just reminders of great saints to help us live a virtuous life. Sure, they have that purpose. But here in the church, they're here to remind us of what is true, which is they're worshiping with us right now. The angels, the cherubim, the seraphim, the archangels, all of them are worshiping with us right now in the divine liturgy. This is what the prayers say. If you have your liturgy book, you can read these prayers. In the entrance prayer, before the priest and deacon come out of the church for the small entrance, the prayer says, Master, Lord our God, who has established the orders and hosts of angels and archangels in heaven to minister to your glory, grant that the holy angels may enter with us, that together we may celebrate and glorify your goodness. In the Cherubic hymn, we say, let us who mystically represent the cherubim and who sing the thrice holy hymn to the life-creating trinity now lay aside every worldly care. We become with the cherubim. There's a wonderful book I've been reading, Experiences During the Divine Liturgy. This wonderful priest has written down hundreds of experiences of miracles and of visions during the divine liturgy. And in this, he recounts a story from St. Yaakovos of Evia. He says, Once during my visit to St. David's monastery in Evia, the ever-memorable Father Yaakovos, this holy priest and celebrant of the Most High, he wasn't a saint at the time of this writing, he's now St. Yaakovos, told me the following in private. Our Christian people are unfortunately spiritually blind and are not able to see what takes place in the divine liturgy. And I'll add to that, because of the lack of faith of our clergy. 
Once I was serving the liturgy but could not do the great entrance. During the cherubic hymn, I was immobilized before the holy altar, unable to move by what I saw. One vision of God came after another. And the author of the book says, Father, what were you able to see? I asked in amazement, but he would not answer. And he continued. So this is St. Yaakovo saying this. The chanter would continuously repeat that we may receive the king of all, the ending part of that hymn of the cherubic hymn. Because our chanters know they're supposed to repeat that and repeat that and repeat that until we come out from the altar. I suddenly felt someone pushing me on the shoulder and taking me to the sanctuary. I was under the impression that it was the chanter, so I said to myself, that blessed one, how can he be so irreverent? How dare he enter through the royal gates and push me? So I turn my head and I see a huge wing, which the archangel had passed round my shoulder and was guiding me to do the great entrance. What is actually going on here in the sanctuary during the divine liturgy cannot be described. Most of the time I do not have the strength to see what I see, and so I sit on the chair. As a result, certain concelebrants of mine think that something is wrong with my health and they're worried, but they do not know what I see and hear. My child, it is amazing how the angels flap their wings, how they flap their wings. As soon as the priest says through the prayers, at the end of the divine liturgy, we say through the prayers of our holy fathers. As soon as the priest says through the prayers, the heavenly powers depart and there is absolute silence in the sanctuary. But this is what we say in the prayers of every liturgy. In the anaphora, the time when the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ, we say in these prayers, we thank you also for this liturgy which you have deigned to receive from our hands, even though thousands of archangels and tens of thousands of angels stand around you, the cherubim and seraphim, six-winged, many-eyed, soaring aloft upon their wings, singing the triumphal hymn, exclaiming and proclaiming, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are filled with your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Together with these blessed powers, Master, who loves mankind, we also exclaim and say, we join them. We join them in the eternal banquet at the end of time. This is where we are right now. There's another vision that this humble author offers. He says, there was once a devout ordinary Christian who during the divine liturgy saw with the eyes of his soul in a state of ecstasy, a fearful vision. Following the exclamation, the doors, the doors, and the creed was being recited, the celebrant takes the ayer, the cloth, and was moving it rhythmically up and down. And the hands of the angels for a moment started folding the ayer in a saintly manner in great devoutness. The moment the holy ayer was being folded, it seemed that an invisible rock was being rolled from the door of the tomb. The holy altar and the dome of the temple were filled with the presence of thousands of cherubim and seraphim, chanting and saying the triumphant hymn, Holy, 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 Lord of Sabaoth. While one could also hear the words, Glory to God in the highest, being chanted joyfully and festively from a large number of angelic orders, as well as other inconceivable hymns. 
This is what is happening right now in the liturgy. Even if we don't see it, the liturgy is progressing along until the great gifts of Christ. And those gifts are offered when the deacon standing at the doors says these profound words, with the fear of God, with faith and love, draw near. And this, my brothers and sisters, is our path forward so that we're no longer wrestling with each other, but are wrestling with the evil one. With the fear of God, with faith and love, draw near. Father Stephanos, who writes this, he also gives many commentaries on the liturgy as he's recounting these miracles. He says this about that phrase, with the fear of God. This fear is not the fear of a slave, nor the fear of a person who is terrified, nor is it of a psychological nature, or the fear of losing our money, our job, our health, and thereafter. It is neither fear nor anxiety. It is the noble sentiment of godliness and contrition, a sentiment of reverence and wisdom. Besides, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. When you realize that God became man in the person of Jesus Christ, so that man may become God by grace, you are filled with fear, awe, wonder, and wisdom. If the cherubim and the seraphim stand with immense fear, reverence before the throne of God, and cover their countenances with their wings, how much more so ought we to be striving faithful Christians to stand up with holy fear before the most holy altar and before the holy cup, not the fear of a slave. So we rightly understand that the fear of God is a fear of God's great humility and compassion. It is a surpassing awe. It is indescribable what we witness in Christ our God, in his sacrifice and what he has done for us. This is the fear of God. And the corollary of this with the fear of God is that we are to fear nothing else. Nothing else else. Nothing should be fearful to us as Christians. St. Anthony was in the cave with these wild beasts, these visions of animals or snakes, or St. Yakovos with the scorpions, and he was not afraid. Now we might read that and we say, well, of course that's a demonic vision. But if you're in a place, a dark place, and if you have snakes coming out, what does your rational mind say? Does it say, oh, that's just a temptation from the devil? You see, it doesn't matter whether it's a demonic deception or whether it's reality. It doesn't matter. Fear is fear. Because we have these little snakes creeping out in our lives all the time. And we might say to ourselves rationally, I should fear that. That's something I should be afraid of. But the fear of that is in contrast to the fear of God. Nowhere is this more true than in the witness of martyrs. I have a very small icon here. I'll place it up in the front. This is St. George, the new martyr. If you have your weekly bulletin, you can read about his life. If not, grab that on your way out. And learn about this blessed new martyr who professed Christ in the face of torments, and ultimately in the face of death. The martyrs teach to us, prove to us, that there is nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. 
And they stand as this dramatic witness when their persecutors, all they want to do is make them fearful so they'll deny Christ and do whatever they want. And the martyrs stand firm. They stay firm in their faith. And they're not turned by anything. How does this relate to us? You see, we each have a martyrdom. And that martyrdom is to turn away from the things that we are fearful of. That's our martyrdom. And it may be a martyrdom to be in church for you. It may be a martyrdom to be in church and be fearful of being around other people. It may be a martyrdom for you to wear a mask. There are many martyrdoms that we may have in our life. And in these, we unite ourselves to St. George or to any of our martyred saints. So with the fear of God and with faith, that's the first word that comes right after that, faith. I always say that you could translate it perhaps better, faithfulness, because faith is not a concept, an idea that I have in my head. It's not something that I agree to. Rather, it's an action, a continuous, ongoing action, my faithfulness. In the gospel, there are lots of examples of faithfulness. In the gospel today, he says, your faith has made you well. Let's ponder that for a minute. The faith is what made him well. The faith took leprosy out of his body. This is what faith did in the gospel today. And how many times in the gospel does our Lord talk about the faith of a person and what it, how it has healed the person? The woman coming up behind and touching his cloak with the issue of blood. The woman who comes and begs, beseeches Christ and the apostles, and the apostles say, send her away. And our Lord said, it's not right to give the food, my children's food, to the dogs. And that woman stands in faith and says, yes, but even the dogs eat from their master's table. Faith is the thing that transforms us. Faith is what heals and protects us. And this is the paradox of faith. Because do you think that all who came to Christ were healed? We only hear about the healings. There might have been people coming up, trying desperately, asking, maybe touching him, who weren't healed. Because faith is the key factor in, in this. Faith is what transforms a situation. St. Paul says, taking the shield of faith with which you will be healed, I'm sorry, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Faith is our shield. Faith is that thing that we hold up to protect us against what? Against fear. And it is what we can use to quench not some of the fiery darts, all of the fiery darts of the evil one. Because as I talk about snakes or scorpions crawling through a cave, what about contagion floating through the air? Does it matter whether it's a rational thought or a temptation from the devil? It doesn't matter. Fear is what is at the heart of this. St. John said, in his, one of his epistles, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith is the victory that has overcome the world. 
because this is precisely where our rational cause and effect thinking must be put in its right place. This is where our thinking cannot be the way of the world. God has given us our rationality, but he is the God of cause and effect. He is the God who has created cause and effect, and he is not hindered by cause and effect. He is not bound by that. So make no mistake, the cause and effect of this world is subservient to the creator of the universe. This is the right order of things. And if we only have the rational cause and effect, we deny our God, who is above and beyond all of that. God is the one who determines who and what is healed and who and what is sick, because he is the cause of all things. This is what our faith does. And in faith, what we're doing is we're submitting to his will. We're saying, if this happens, then it's according to your will. If it doesn't happen, it's according to your will. This is what the statement of faith is. So we say, with the fear of God, with faith and with love, that word that we know so well and yet we don't know. Love is the completion of things. This is why it's last in the list there. It's everything that gets completed. Father Stephanos says in his passage, he says, Love is based on forgiveness. It is in fact the saving Holy Communion's most basic requirement that God requests. It's Holy Communion's most basic requirement. Unfortunately, the majority of people do not com commune bearing this love. The Lord is our model, who while on the cross cried, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Other examples of models are the martyrs and our holy fathers who imitated our Savior Christ's gentleness and love, with the first martyr and archdeacon Stephen being the first. Lord, do not lay this sin against them. He said while he was being stoned and murdered, as Christians and God's true children, we ought to keep his commandments, especially those that have to do with love. This is why love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that spitefully use you and persecute you are essential to the Christian life. Love is what brings about unity and what brings about peace. Because love ultimately is an experience of God himself. Love is theosis. This is the way in which we unite ourselves to Christ. St. John in his epistle also said, There is no fear in love. By this he means that other fear, not the, the godly fear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. So when we have love, we no longer have torment. We no longer have fear. In our desire to love one another, we should be giving more grace, giving more leeway. St. Paisios, I've mentioned this before, talks about the good excuse. It's where when someone does something, someone cuts you off on the freeway or says a harsh word to you, you say in your head, there must be a reason for that. Maybe you even excuse them with a reason. You say, that person had a hard night and a lot of stress. In this way, we offer the good excuse to those who are around us, and we cover them in love. We don't rush to judgment and condemnation. 
because in this we become unified as one body in Christ. St. Anthony even went as far as to say, life and death depend on our neighbor. For if we win over our brother, we win over God, but if we offend our brother, we sin against Christ. Life and death depends on our neighbor. This is what St. Anthony says. So with fear of God, with faith and love, draw near. That's the actual command in the sentence. Draw near. Come close. Don't be afraid. This is the command. The rest prepares us to do that command with the fear of God, with faith and love. Now we are drawing near. Look at the gospel, at the lepers who drew near to Christ. Look at the woman who drew near to Christ and touched his garment. Look at all the people who came to Christ. They were drawing near. Zacchaeus drawing near by going up into the tree. The leper outside of the city of Jericho calling out to him, or the blind man, forgive me. How many people calling out to Christ, drawing near to Christ? And this is where we are as well. They have a singular focus. Their focus is just on being with Christ. And this must be our focus as well. Now there is a virus that has ravaged the church recently, in recent months. And this virus is the virus that says God's grace is limited to the chalice. At least as Orthodox we say that. We might say at least. But this is a sickness. How can we say that the house of God only has God's grace that is impervious to anything just in the chalice? How can we be surrounded by angels and saints worshiping God and say it's only there? That's the only place. Not in the holy icons, not in the receiving of blessings from the priest, not in this space at all, just in the chalice. And we're fighting for just that. As Orthodox, we cannot follow this. As Christians, as humans created by God, we cannot believe that because this is the house of God, the, uh, the uncreated God. God is a God of overabundance. He's a God that pours forth grace all over the face of the earth. His grace sustains each and every one of us, gives us our breath. He's not a God that is stingy with his grace. He is pouring it forth upon us. But a key piece in that is our faith. Do we have the faith? Do we have the faith to believe that it's not just cause and effect, that the God who is over cause and effect is walking us along according to his providence. Do we believe that? We must not come to the disease, succumb to the disease of viewing the world in just cause and effect. We must strive to approach the church without fear. Without fear, except the fear of God. We must strive to approach the church with faith and with love. Love towards our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The icons, everything here without fear in fact the one thing that we've been approaching without fear has been the chalice we have been approaching the chalice without fear isn't that ironic that's the one thing that we should be approaching with fear that's what the deacon says with the fear of god that's the one thing that we should be approaching in fear instead we approach everything else in fear 
So may we live and breathe these words. Because even though these are the words right before the receiving of communion, these are the words that are central to our life in Christ and our communal worship together here in the church with faith and love draw near.